Welcome to Tea for Two, the podcast for women in golf and the men who support them. With your host, Karen Harding. Welcome. Our guest today is someone who could be described as thoughtful. If by that we mean kind, considerate and generous, then yes, Hannah Brown is certainly that. But she is also a person of reflection, a person of serious intellect who is a qualitative thinker on everything she sees in the world around her. Of particular interest, Hannah is a fairly new golfer who can speak with authority and relevance on what a new player encounters, both good and maybe not so good, yet with the life knowledge and experience to speak with compassion and empathy on some of the serious issues in golf, such as diversity, equity and inclusion. To that end, she has a unique voice in the game and one to which we should listen if we truly want to embrace and address some of the concerns faced by new entrants from increasingly varied sectors as they begin their journey in a game that has the potential to be played for life by anyone and everyone. Hannah is also a very creative person, something of a Renaissance woman, who draws on science, humanities and creatives in her work and life interests. Make no mistake, this is one very curious mind and one which we are going to explore today. Hannah, hello. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Hannah, you have a Bachelor of Science with honours, a PhD and an MBA recently completed. Were you born curious? From that description, it sounds like I might be born to never pay off uh, my education debt, I would have thought, but <laughs> I, th- I think so. And I suspect if my nephews are anything to go by, it's probably genetic because they're very much why, why, why all the time. And my mum tells me that that's the same way we were. Mm. I think from the earliest times, I remember having her around to help us answer all the crazy questions we had. And we were just super fortunate that she was a primary school teacher. And so we always had her in the school holidays and the long Christmas holidays. And we had the opportunity to get out and to find the answers to the things we wanted to know. So I suspect I was always curious and I was probably always attracted to science. I think I love knowing how things work. Um, And I think I was probably always fostered to do it, which is, is probably a real gift um, and something very special that I'm not sure everybody gets, but I'm definitely grateful for. Your interests in life are not just confined to science though, are they? You have a lot of creative interests as well in jewellery and cooking, for example. Would you like to tell us a little bit about FU jewellery, for example? (laughs) Ah, The old fairly ugly. Um, I was bored in lockdown. We, you know, my wife, Sam and I, we moved to Melbourne just at the beginning of the COVID pandemic and and found ourselves shut in our house and in an experience that was probably very different to what we thought was going to happen when we moved to Melbourne. And I just was looking on the internet and I saw these people making things out of polymer clay, this kind of plasticine that you bake and can turn into jewellery. And I thought, I can have a go at that. And the first few things I made were, I mean, Fairly Ugly is probably an underestimation of the fact. And the name just kind of stuck. Um, and so anyway, I, I have been selling these Fairly Ugly earrings for, I don't know, about a year now. But the joy is that I get to just donate the money that I, I make from it to charity. So it's been a lot of fun. A lot of people have, have really enjoyed them. And it's kind of had this nice social impact where I get to just give the money to charities that I'm really passionate about. So it's been a bit of fun and a bit of a distraction and, and something that makes me feel good about myself. 
Well, I love the philanthropic aspect that's on top of the creativity and I can say that they are anything but fairly ugly. They are (laughs) really, really lovely. Uh, Hannah, you've also got a particular interest in diversity, equity and inclusion. Was this also inborn or something that occurred to you through observing the inequities in society around you? Probably a bit of both, I suspect. You know, I, I consider myself to have come from a privileged background. You know, I'm white and middle class, but I'm also bisexual. And I think about where I went to school. I went to a super duper diverse Western suburb school in South Australia. I think at the time there were more than 80 languages spoken at home by the kids who went to that school. So really very diverse. And so I think I was probably exposed to it pretty early. My lived experience has always been pretty positive. I think I've been extraordinarily lucky as both a person who identifies as bisexual and um, and also a woman in STEM, which is, you know, the science, technology, engineering, mathematics, which is another group where I think we spend a lot of time talking about diversity, equity and inclusion. And it was probably my experience there that really sort of cemented my interest in the area. But I guess I've always been a people person and I've always really liked people and I've loved people's stories. And I think the more diverse the stories, the, the better the adventure. You spent some time in the academic world before crossing into the public health sector. Um, you're currently Science Strategy and Operations Manager at the Victorian Heart Institute. What does this newest role involve? Yeah, so I guess it's kind of science adjacent these days, I think. You know, I did that training as an academic and and these days I think of myself as more academic or science adjacent and it's really a business role that allows me to take my business knowledge and my science knowledge and find that really interesting and exciting space in the middle where we can turn amazing discoveries that happen by researchers around Monash University and as part of the Victorian Heart Institute and push them into places like the Victorian Heart Hospital where we actually can impact for good. And so to get a piece of science out the door, we have these brilliant researchers who do these this fascinating work, but fundamentally at some point they have to pass it to someone they might pass it to industry or they might pass it to the healthcare sector or they might pass it to a pharmaceutical company. But fundamentally, it needs to get into the hands of someone who can turn it into something that means that we can actually use it or give it to patients. And so I sort of sit at that interface, helping people make good decisions about where they're at with their research and making sure that we can sort of shuffle them along the pipeline and get them into the hands of people who need it as fast as we possibly can. Let's move for a moment from Hannah the scientist to Hannah the golfer. Now, golf is a game that is both science and art. So does one or other of those attract you more in actually playing the game? Oh, it'd have to be science because there's definitely nothing arty about the way I play the game, (laughs) although people may describe it as creative perhaps. It's probably actually not either of those things. I think the thing that attracted me to the game was the fact that my wife was an absolute fanatic and it was about doing something and being exposed to something that she was extraordinarily passionate about and very good at and having something that we could do together on a holiday or something where we had a shared passion where we didn't have to talk about work or other things and, you know, where we could use it as an excuse to see the world probably more than anything. You had a fairly negative perception of the game though coming into it, didn't you? Yeah, my dad used to make me watch it on TV when I was a kid and it was awful. (laughs) But... I took a few lessons as a kid, like as a very young person, my dad took my brother and I to a few lessons. And then it wasn't until much later that I sort of, you know, I didn't even really think about golf as a game that I was interested in. In fact, I probably thought 
if anyone had asked me and they said, oh, what sports are you into? I'd say, oh, everything except for motorsport and golf. <laughs> Both things I thought are just absolutely mind-numbing on TV, but actually I've kind of turned the corner on golf. Not so much motorsport, I still give that a miss, but yeah, there is something special about golf, that's for sure. Watching golf on TV is a very different experience to actually playing it. I am rather pleased that you've given this apparently wretched game a go. Uh, what are your thoughts now that you've actually tried it? Oh, it's apparently wretched, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Look, some, some things about the, you know, the game I've completely fallen in love with and, and other things I'm still struggling with, I think. You know, I... The actual concept of the game seems easy, right? And I think as a, you know, as a newcomer to the game, I thought I played hockey as a kid, you know, I could run, I could catch the ball, I could move. So how hard could golf possibly be? You know, the ball's stationary, you just have to stand there, you stand, aim, shoot. Um, it turns out it's just not that simple and it's frustrating. But actually it wasn't until I went out there and I started, you know, firstly I started following Sam around the course and learning about the the weather and the you know the fact that just because you decide that you're going to aim somewhere doesn't necessarily mean the ball's going to go there and then you find yourself playing a shot that you'd never considered or never imagined that you were going to have to play backwards from behind a bush or or what have you and so I think it, it was nothing like I imagined it to be and I think that's probably because I'd just never seen the entire thing play out for myself before and I'd never got the enjoyment of being out there and having a laugh and getting deep into conversation with someone over like four hours and actually experiencing all the good things that golf has to offer, you know, the exercise and the bird life and the fact that almost instantly you can feel like you're a really long way away from wherever you were when you started. And I think those are the really good things that I've learned to love and and learned to really appreciate about the game that you definitely don't get from TV. Mm, I think many of your professors at the Heart Institute would agree that golf is extremely good for cardiac health as well, wouldn't they? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, we've seen just recently this sort of number of high profile people um, dying of cardiovascular related events and being out on the course and breathing fresh air and getting 10 kilometres of steps in it really can't be a bad thing. It is a really, really good opportunity to get your heart moving. And I think that these are the kind of activities that we should be encouraging for heart health. And we should be encouraging people to not just use the stairs when they're at work or park their car an extra flight up or an extra few sections away from work to get in a little bit of incidental activity, but also getting in some really purposeful activity, you know, through things like golf and other activities. From the perspective of a new entrant to golf, what are some things you'd like to see introduced or created to make the game more welcoming to women of all ages and stages? It's a good question. And I've been thinking about it a lot because I've been thinking about, you know, what would make the game better for me? And not just me, but um, for people like me. And I think, you know, one thing is I'm really busy. And so, you know, thinking about really encouraging ways to, to keep the game short and on my time, you know, I think something that I would really benefit from was clubs or places thinking about how to have out of hours, particularly when the, when the days are long during summer, activities that bring people together after hours, you know, after work um, for, for busy working people, but, you know, and in a short way. So, you know, nine hole twilight competitions, for example, you know, thinking about how you can take some of the best elements of the game and offer them to people in a time and in a way that works for them. They don't have to be big changes, but, 
changes that encourage people to actually go to the club, to meet the people, to hang out with people that are like-minded, but in a way that actually suits their lifestyle. And so thinking about not just how to try and fit into a Tuesday women's comp when I have to be at work or how to spend my entire weekend committed to that when there are a whole lot of other things that I really like doing and that are priorities to me, like spending time with family and those kind of things. But what are the options? How do you make it work for people? And importantly, how do you know what that looks like? How do you engage people to say, well, what would work for you and how can we co-create solutions that actually look like inclusive golf? Mm, Well, it seems the obvious answer is to ask them, isn't it? And not just ask, but then deliver. For an assignment as part of your MBA this year, you wrote a paper entitled Reimagining the Game and Business of Golf in Australia Through an Inclusion and Adaption Lens. Can you tell us a little about the premise and focus of that paper, please, Hannah? Yeah, so I guess the premise is that I was interested in the business of golf and that I'd kind of exhausted all the things I wanted to write about in science. So, I, you know, I took on this this Masters of Business Administration during the pandemic, wanting to learn more about business and wanting to learn how I could find a really unique interface between science and business. And it got to the final assignment and I just didn't want to write about science anymore. And I thought, well, what else am I interested in right now? And golf just seemed like the logical thing, you know, we were playing a bit, I was learning about the game, I was asking a lot of questions and it just thought like felt like the right thing to write about. And so I guess the the sort of premise for the work was that having come to the game as a person who's almost 40, who probably isn't the typical person walking up to a private golf club in 2022, what does it look like for me and what would make me really want to join, for example, a sandbelt club? You know, what are the things that I respect about business and about social enterprise and about morality and ethics and And do they exist in golf and in the golf industry in Australia? And if they don't, what would that look like? How would I reimagine the game for it to be a place where I really wanted to be, where I was keen to invest my money, invest my time, create change, be part of a community and a culture in Australia? And so that was kind of why I did the work. And, you know, and I just applied my experience, my scientific experience of asking critical questions and approaching things in a sort of methodological way. And my real passion and interest in in diversity, equity and inclusion. And I sort of overlapped those things to look at where the opportunities existed for golf, I guess, in a really positive frame and what it could be if it took on some of these inclusive behaviours and considered growth and adaption as something that it did. It is a very positive research paper, I have to say. It does look at the possibilities rather than just uh, talking about the negatives. Before we get into it in a little bit more detail, we might just have a brief conversation on terminology because there can be some confusion around this for a lot of people. In layman's terms, can you tell us what DEI, so diversity, equity and inclusion, means and why it is so important culturally to integrate it into golf. I think for me, diversity is really about difference. It's about the fact that there are many different people with many different lived experiences, and that is all important and relevant. With respect to inclusion, I think if diversity is the what, then inclusion is kind of the how. It's the what do we do, how do we foster a sense of value and empowerment for the diversity for the difference. 
And then equity is the equal opportunity component of that so that there aren't any barriers. And so I think that they are all intimately linked, but they all have kind of different, you know, some is more about actually getting people to the table. Some is then about facilitating them to actually speak at the table and then actually delivering outcomes which reflect the experience of the people. Why is it important for golf? Well, because I think golf doesn't do it particularly well. There are a lot of opportunities, I think, that golf could take that would be of strategic advantage to the business, but it would be of strategic advantage to the game because it's very, very rare that people have these extraordinary lived experiences and cultures and that you bring them to an environment and it makes something worse. It almost always makes something better. And so the game just has so much to gain from taking these things on and thinking about how it can apply them to the game. But but also to the business of golf in Australia, I think, you know, it's, there's a lot of change in the business scape with respect to public and private golf and new little startups and, and organisations supporting groups to come in. And so, you know, I think there are so many great opportunities and that's what I wanted to look at, you know, where are the best opportunities for growth and how could that make the game better? The notion of inclusion has not really been seen by many as having implications for business success, Uh, yet there's now been some quality studies showing that inclusive business practices can offer a competitive advantage and improve profitability. Now, you mentioned some of those studies in your paper, in particular one that I was taken with was the Diversity Matters study. Would you like to just fill us in a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. So I think there are, you know, a number of large consulting groups and this piece of work was just done by another big um, American consulting group have looked at the value of diversity and inclusion in business in, in sort of large, big top 100 businesses globally. And the outcomes from those studies continue to be compelling. Some of the early works looked simply at board structure and they said, well, if we just look specifically at gender equity on, on boards, what is the outcome? Obviously, we need to move towards considering non-binary genders too. But in those studies, if there were equal numbers of men and women on boards, those companies made more money. You know, they their employees were happier and the outcomes for the organisations were better. And I think as we've moved along, we've seen big studies continue to unpack what that looks like. They can look at more values and dig deeper into what those analyses look like. And if they look at culturally and linguistically diverse people on boards, if they look at people who have disabilities, for example, the more broadly diversity can be represented on boards and in business leadership, the better off the businesses are. They have a better return on investment for their investments and they make more profit. And fundamentally, you can think of profit in terms of money or you can think about what the profit might be for a golf club, for example. You know, many of these are probably registered charities. They're considered non-for-profit entities or turn only a small profit. And so the currency of success is probably different. But I think that you'd argue that that currency is still important and diversity is going to certainly contribute to that. So I think people look to these organisations and especially young people now, I think we're seeing a big change that they say, well, does this organisation actually represent my values and does it represent me? And people choose to put their money in places that do that. And golf isn't any different. It should want the currency of success and it should determine for itself what that looks like. And it would be very hard to argue that diversity isn't a really important part of that messaging and story. 
If we just concentrate on the commercial profitability for one second, because golf is big business, one of those studies suggested that culturally and ethnically diverse boards were 43% more likely to show above average profit. So really, if you are in the golf industry, you should be pricking up your ears at that alone, aside from the moral and social obligations. But with a finding like that, it becomes possible to marry social impact with commercial profit, doesn't it? Whereas before, these might have been seen as opposing forces. Oh, of course. This is a extraordinarily multicultural country. There is compelling evidence to suggest that inclusion and finding ways to bring those communities together delivers really important outcomes. There's some really lovely literature looking at what this looks like for sport for young people, providing safe and inclusive environments for culturally and linguistically diverse communities in in junior sport, where the currency is probably like kids doing well, you know, kids making strong relationships and being well and getting exercise, you know, imagine what that means for actually making money. And that's not why we're here. And that's definitely not why I did the assignment to make golf richer. I have no desire to do that. But I I guess richer as a community is the thing that I would love to see, you know, richer as a cultural place where people can come together and learn and socialise and grow. And I think there's no question that what works for big business will work for golf and what works for junior sport in Australia will absolutely work for golf. And it's just a matter of saying, well, what values are we going to set for ourselves, and why do we want to do this well? Because it almost certainly won't be about money for public golf or for private clubs. It'll be about some kind of value on purpose that is bigger than money and that it's probably bigger than the game. It improves it for the people that are around and it brings people to the club and it allows people to be well. Well, at the end of the day, if you don't provide a product that the consumers want to buy, there will be no business anyway. So it's good business sense. It's the right thing to do. Your study um, used a couple of research tools, one called SWOT, Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities and Threats, and the other PESL, which stands for Political, Economic, Sociocultural, Technological, Legal or Regulatory and Environmental. Um, Let's examine the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats to golf as it currently exists, beginning with one which is fairly fundamental to the game that you've identified as both a strength and a weakness, and that's handicapping. Why do you see it as both, Hannah? For people who aren't familiar with these business frameworks, they're just kind of platforms or tools that you can use to appraise your business's capabilities and strengths. The thing about a SWOT analysis, looking at your an organisation or a business's strengths and, and weaknesses and opportunities and threats, is that it allows you to decide what good activity and good business looks like. And the reason I thought about handicapping was because it's a fundamental of the game. And it's the thing that, you know, when I was thinking about an inclusion and a, and a diversity and equity lens, it actually provides some real equity to the game. You know, it allows me to go out with my wife and her handicap is at least 30 handicap points better than mine. But it, it allows us to be on an equal playing field temporarily, despite the fact that she's been playing for 30 years and I've been playing for 12 months. And fundamentally, that meets those criteria, right? There's a system that says, hey, we want everybody to be able to play together. And we could also go out there and play with two gentlemen and the same opportunity would be afforded to all of us. And I thought, oh, well, that actually seems like a really good framework 
to start from. So as a strength, you know, it's like, wow, look, you can have inclusion and equity at the very foundation of the game. And then I thought, well, but what about people who, for example, have a non-binary gender? So, you know, I think the way we perceive gender has really changed. I think people have always viewed their gender as the way they view it. And non-binary genders have probably almost always existed, but it's not something that has been, I guess, widely talked about until more recently. And there just isn't a solution for these people in the game. So if, for example, you identify as non-binary, so you do not feel or you are not male or female, then what does golf offer you? So how does it fit you into that inclusive lens that it's decided to create to actually allow everybody to play together? All of a sudden, it's exclusionary because there are just these two binary genders. There's another game, Korfball, which originates from the Netherlands, on which there are eight players on a team, four men and four women, and it's played at its highest level, mixed. But there are very few other games that look like that. Golf is one of them where you can have that really equitable position, but where there isn't currently an offering that allows everybody in. You know, age, those, you know, that's completely covered. Gender, got a bit of work to do, but there's got to be a solution. There's got to be a way to take this brilliant equitable part of the game and make it more relevant. Handicapping philosophically allows us all to play together. That's the beauty of it. And one of the things that makes golf one of the most inclusive sports around by design. If we're talking about social games, this is still the case. You can play with anybody, can't you? It's the competition aspect that brings in the problem because you're talking about a handicap against which you're measured in competition. I did speak to Simon Mogdalski, who's the Senior Manager Play Management and Regulations at Golf Australia about this very topic. It is on notice with the major governing bodies throughout the world. Obviously, Australia's part of the world handicapping system, so any solution would be need to be part of a global solution. One possibility is is that we'll ultimately go to gender-neutral competitions and there'll just be one handicap. It's a huge logistical problem to bring that in because you've got to re-rate every uh, golf course that is part of that world handicapping system. But I'm pleased that it is actually on notice there and they are looking at it, which is better than just ignoring an obvious problem, isn't it? I did talk to a few individuals at different golf clubs about what the opportunity might be for, say, a transgender individual, someone who had transitioned from one gender to another. And most of the clubs thought that that probably wasn't a big deal with respect to the kinds of changes that they would have to make. And in fact, one club informed me that they did have a transgender player at their club or member at their club and that nothing had really changed for that individual, you know, that they had been very well welcomed into the space and into the fold and that there were solutions for them. I think when it comes to the the more non-binary genders, that is more tricky. Although at the non-competition level, it's easy. You just stop calling them women's and men's teas and you just encourage people to play off the tea that suits them on the day. And golf isn't all about counting the numbers. And if it is about being out there and enjoying the game and those kinds of things. There are some simple and easy solutions. And if you really want to make it inclusive, you do have to find a solution at the highest level because that's what inclusion means. It means not being excluded from any particular place for any particular reason. But we can work really hard to do it at the non-competitive level and to think about activities just like non-gendered bathrooms that would make non-binary individuals feel more comfortable in an array of different ways. And, you know, I'm certainly not the expert 
I'm a cis female and, you know, so I don't have all the answers, but asking the people who really need it um, and asking the people with the experience, you know, actually doing genuine community and stakeholder engagement and asking members of the LGBTI community and and non-binary individuals what would work for them is the right place to start. I agree. I think it's vital to include people who will be affected by a decision to be part of the decision-making process. The sector that's had the most visibility and therefore positive movement in Australia is gender equality, largely as a result of work around Vision 2025. What measures might we consider to give more visibility to other minority groups such as golfers with disability, First Nations peoples, culturally and linguistically diverse communities and others? Good question. I mean, importantly, gender is a good place to start. And I think that having a strategy for getting more women and girls into the sport is really important given the numbers. And golf is headed in the right direction. And that's the first important message because they're not doing nothing, but there is more to be done. It's great that there are allies for women. Now let's be allies for other minority groups who need it. And I think you know, the simplest one is, well, it's not simple, but the one that to me that seems like a no-brainer is is a commitment to reconciliation and providing an inclusive place for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And while I definitely don't speak for those people, I have had the immense privilege of spending two years at the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute in Adelaide that had probably the the country's leading Indigenous research group and to just learn an extraordinary amount from them about what is required to actually make meaningful change for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And the first place to start is a commitment to reconciliation. The lands on which golf is played belongs to and has always belonged to Aboriginal people. And so thinking about how, you know, Golf Australia and public and private clubs can engage with Reconciliation Australia, you know, a group who are here to help people take those first steps towards reconciliation and make meaningful change and a meaningful commitment towards complete inclusion and leadership of the game by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is really, really important. And I think within the assignment, you've seen it, but I just looked at a random assortment of clubs, um, sandbelt clubs in Victoria of sort of top 100 clubs across Australia. And I could count on one hand the number of clubs who have a visible commitment in this space. And it, it to me, it's a non-negotiable where real change needs to be made. And, and given there are great organisations that can help golf move forward in this space, there's no time like the present. It is not one that is terribly hard to do either, you wouldn't think, would you? Look, no, it's not hard. There are elements of it that aren't easy because obviously racism is still a thing in Australia. It's not something that we probably talk about with as much intensity as we should, but it is still present and it is still an issue for many culturally and linguistically diverse groups and for Australia's First Nations peoples. I continue to be shocked when I go to, to golf events and there is no acknowledgement of country, which I just, I, I, I'm embarrassed by. You know, for me, I, I rarely go to a meeting these days at work where we haven't made an acknowledgement of country and where we don't reflect on why the work we do is, is really important to our First Nations peoples. And it, I'm sure it's coming. Well, that's good news. Yeah. 
You've noted that well-intentioned DEI initiatives in both community sport and even large corporations have sometimes been haphazard because they've lacked uh, clearly defined strategy and quantifiable outcomes. What are some of the essential components to a good business strategy around DEI in golf as you see it? And what can we learn from other sports that are more advanced in this area than us, such as footy and cricket? I think the good news is golf doesn't have to recreate the wheel, that games like, for example, Australian rules football, where they have a competition for women, where they celebrate minority groups, culturally and linguistically diverse minority groups. They have a game for the pride to represent the particularly high numbers of the LGBT community that's represented in in the women's game. They have an Indigenous round where brilliant Indigenous artists are paid to create guernseys that are worn by the teams. And in fact, some teams are wearing them way more often than than just Indigenous round now, which I love. There are groups that are leading by example, and, and these are all things that could be incorporated into the game of golf. And I think that when you look at the ways that groups have gone about it is that they're almost always co-designed and co-led by key stakeholders. It's one thing to say you're committed to it. It's another thing to actually have a plan. And I think when you embed it into your actual strategic goals, when it forms part of your vision, when it forms part of the goals that you actually want to deliver as part of your game, when you are measuring it and when you are seeing it as a commitment as part of all aspects of your business. So, for example, if you want to be committed to inclusion at the junior level for golf, for example, you better be committed to inclusion at the board level of Golf Australia. You actually have to walk the walk if you're going to talk the talk. And it's, I think, businesses that have shown to have the greatest success are places where these kind of activities are not just embedded in one place, but where they're visible across the entire organisation. There's a good quote in your paper, Hannah, which I really liked. Adaptability is the mechanism by which a business can pivot its activity to reflect environmental and market change or need and can be advantageous to business outcomes. Now, the natural world does this through evolution. Why are humans who've changed so much themselves through the course of human history so resistant to the idea of change, do you think? Look, it's a really good question because change is fundamentally a good thing. You know, I think you cannot have improvement without change. And if you look at it at the very simplest level for the highest level player, they can only be better if they change as a high performance athlete. Something has to change to allow you to be better. And, you know, I've heard Ida Buttrose speak on this before and, you know, I don't drink all of the Ida Buttrose Kool-Aid, but certainly she has this perspective on change that I think is really inspiring and that is that change breeds opportunity. Yes, an opportunity is such a positive word, um, as is possibilities. And that's what I like about your paper also is, is that it's taking that positive approach. Change does sometimes seem hard The negative spin is to look at what we think we might be losing, isn't it? Whereas the positive way is to consider what we're gaining. That's why I stuck with the positive spin and that's why I looked for opportunities because I thought there actually were loads. When I looked at the landscape, even in Australia, you know, there were really, really good programs starting to emerge to bring people to the game. But even though I was interested in golf, in golf, you know, for women and for diverse communities, and I'm a beginner, I had to hunt I was really fortunate to be exposed to Sandy Jamison's one club game, like the first time I ever hit a golf ball. My wife took me out there because 
she had read an article about the program that he was running there and we went out and I got a one club and, you know, what a brilliant way to bring people to the game. You know, the thought that you can just buy a a $40 club and off you go and that the whole fun and affordable and what, you know, what an outstanding program. How do we keep people in the game after we've got those little outstanding programs? It's one thing to bring people to the game. It's a complete another thing to keep them in the game. And what are the pipelines to actually keep people playing a game at a affordable level at an in an inclusive way? That's where there's a bit of work to be done, but that's where great opportunities exist. People want to start the game. These brilliant business opportunities suggest that there's the market for it. But then how do we keep them? The only opportunity can't be feeding into a private club because if you ask me what it looks like for me, it doesn't look like that. It doesn't necessarily suit the way I want to be part of the game. And alarmingly, I think public golf is at risk. It's facing extinction because we haven't necessarily been able to support it in a way that means that it's viable and that it's a good investment and that it's something the community should invest in. Yes, there should be diversity, not just in the people who play the game, but in the products that are being offered. And that's where public golf and private golf clubs can still sit side by side. The key is obviously to be inclusive to all. I think there's a lot of good work underway, and I know you do too, and uh, there are good signs of that being built upon. One thing I'd like to see more is better communication. I think we can tell the stories better of some of the minority groups for a start and make people more aware that these offerings are out there so that they can access them. Hannah, how positive are you yourself about where we're heading in golf? Look, I think that fluctuates on a daily basis. Fundamentally, the game's great. You know, it doesn't need fixing. It just needs a fraction of change and improvement to make it more inclusive. And it's funny, you know, I think you surround yourself with people that are like-minded and that are like you in every aspect of your life. And so when I look at the people that we are intimately connected to in a number of ways, you know, I think, wow, look at the way people are looking at the future of the game. Hannah, it's been fantastic to talk with you today and learn more about a subject that affects all of us much more than we might like to think. And a subject which is critical as golf evolves. There's no doubt that the game has homework to do, but there's a lot of positive work going on, as we said. So thanks for so generously sharing your knowledge and perspective with us. I think we all now should understand more than we did before And hopefully we can take that into our club's culture and business practices. Let's hope so for the good of the game going forwards. Thanks for talking with us today, Hannah. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed hearing Hannah's story and thoughts as much as I have. Golf is such a great game and wouldn't we just love for everyone to be able to enjoy it as much as we do? It's really just laying out the welcome mat and giving other people the opportunity to join us. Of course, the more people who play, the more friends we can make and the more fun we can have together. If you would like to learn more about some of the issues Hannah touched upon, there are links in the show notes which can give further detail and information. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please let fellow golfers know we're here, either by word of mouth, sharing a link or leaving a favourable rating or review. The more people who come to the show, the more visible we can make the stories of women in golf and of the men who support them. 
If you'd like to have new episodes delivered completely free of charge as soon as they're available, you can hit the subscribe or follow button next to the T for Two podcast on your phone or device podcast app. And if you have any questions or have someone in mind whose story you think might be interesting, please feel free to shoot me an email at hello at tfor2.com.au. Tifa 2 is produced on the traditional country of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation in Victoria and offers respect to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm really looking forward to catching up with you for our next Tea Time Together. Our next guest is also someone whose story you will enjoy. So look out for that one. Until then, have fun in golf. Thanks for listening to Tea for Two. To check out other episodes and to keep up to date with what's happening in women's golf, please head over to tfor2.com.au.